in this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio. You've got an analogous situation happens with Freemasonry, which was a trade. The first uh, lodges of Masons in London were all stonemasons and bringing some gentlemen in who were interested or had some relationship to the trade. And within a hundred years, Masonry has become a kind of divine theory and its root in architecture and building has been severed. I mean, we know that was done deliberately in, in London in the 18th century. There was a deliberate separation of the lodge, the lodges from the trade. And we, we see that with alchemy, that the texts are removed from their, as the Germans would say, their sits im Leben, their real setting in life. And that's, that's created, that, 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 that process has created so much of the mystique and, and damaging confusion. Damaging only if you care about what really is and what really happened and what we're really talking about. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by scholar and author Tobias Churton to discuss his latest book, The First Alchemists. In addition to explaining the origins of alchemy, Tobias discusses two of the earliest alchemists, Suzysmus of Panopolis and Mary the Prophetess, the art's connection to Gnosticism, Judaism, and Hermeticism, and how exploring the origins of alchemy challenges our understanding of the art. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Tobias Churton, scholar, lecturer, composer, and religious TV director, is author of 27 published books, including biographies of William Blake, Alistair Crowley, G.I. Gurdjieff, and Elias Ashmole. A theology graduate of Brasenose College, Oxford, he was appointed Honorary Fellow in 2005 to lecture in Western Esotericism at Exeter University and is Britain's leading scholar in the field, specializing in Gnostic, Hermetic, Rosicrucian, Biblical, and Masonic studies. His most recent books include Aleister Crowley in Paris and The Lost Pillars of Enoch. He joins me today to discuss his latest book, The First Alchemist. Tobias, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Nice to be there. I am a rebel spirit, and therefore <laughs> I've I've had a lot of trouble. Yeah, <laughs> anybody you. who's a anybody who's a rebel is inviting trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good thing to be a rebel, and and I see that in your scholarship, and I love your work. And you, from what I've read, and I've only read a few of your works, you do a lot of correcting a lot of our assumptions. And I think that's something that you did specifically in The First Alchemist. Specifically with the idea, the common idea that alchemy is transforming lead into gold. And to disabuse us of that notion, you go back to The First Alchemist to see what they were doing. And I found this incredibly fascinating because it brings in a lot of ideas and themes that I thought were kind of on the margins, especially like Gnosticism, some early Christian Gnosticism. And there's always knowledgeable about the connections between Hermeticism and alchemy. 
But I wanted to start with this question. If alchemy is not transforming lead into gold, what is it? It's metallurgical chemistry. Okay. That's what it's that begins at. And it's only our it's only the conceit of scientific history which relegated alchemy into the realm of the esoteric and the occult and the passé, which has created, among other facets, a disconnect between the real meaning of alchemy and what it's understood to be now, which is a confusion, frankly, is a confusion. Mm. And that's why I wrote the book, was because I was confused. I'd be asked on numerous interviews, you know, well, what what is alchemy? And I... I'd always felt that sort of unsureness when you suddenly realize that your inherited a conglomeration of knowledge on the subject doesn't quite meet uh, the desire to know what it really is. And so that's that motivated me to write the book. I thought, well, if I'm confused, a lot of people were probably even more confused. So what is alchemy? Well, the word alchemy is a, a misnomer. It's a, a mistaken word, which we have to live with, like so many others, like Semitic, for example, much in the news at the moment. Alchemy, alchemy is simply the Arabic word for chemistry. The key word in the period we're talking about, our earliest proper records of metallurgical chemistry, we're talking about kumia in Greek, kumia, or sometimes written with an eta, chemia. The root of this is slightly disputed, but all, all of the roots are pretty much saying the same thing. It's to do with something black, something roasted, something burnt, uh, not something blue in this case. <laughs> and I think we're talking about, and I think the evidence is, we're talking about the art of heat, what heat can do, what fire can do, what roasting can do. I mean, the first thing it can do, as anyone knows, is it turns things to black. The sun in the south in Egypt, you leave something, a body out in it long enough, it eventually will become carbonized. And it is the art of, of, of roasting and carbonating substances. That's what it is. In other words, it's what we call chemistry. Mm. It's metallurgical chemistry because its principal ingredients were dominant metals such as copper, gold, silver, tin, and lead. They're the main facets of it and then numerous minerals were also employed the purpose of this chemia chemia in all of the early recipes from the earliest documents we have in greek again found always remarkably in the same area of egypt upper egypt an area called the thebaid around the ancient thebes which incidentally is where most of the Gnostic writings were also found and of the same period. We're talking about the, the, the copies that we have at the moment are dated around 300 AD or CE, if you prefer, common era. And that was obviously a very fecund period in the development of this science. And it is a science. They called it, the people who practiced it, especially the dominant, figure we have in in the in the production of, of our, our earliest ideas of alchemy zosimus of panopolis panopolis is right in the thebaid he calls it the most holy and noble art so that's what it is it's a holy and noble art to those who understand it says zosimus 
for other people, I think it was simply the art of dying. It, 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 it's, it's concerned exclusively with dying materials, particularly stones or, or metals, things to make votive objects. The making of purple dye for textiles was also important. And I think the fact that Zosimus is named as coming from Panopolis is very important because Panopolis then, city of Pan, <laughs> quite interesting in itself, now known as Akmim, is still, Akmim is still a center of textile production. And I think it is in the world of industrial, I, I, I isolate the notion in, in my book that there was a, a kind of industrial revolution going on in Upper Egypt, which developed after the Romans took over from the late Ptolemies, when Cleopatra, Mark Antony committed suicide in 3031 BC and the Romans move in and start governing it. The old order led by the Ptolemies, which were Greek Egyptian royal family, that old order starts to be dismantled by the Romans and they introduce uh, new, new kinds of civic life, which include guilds and more commercial industry. And the power of the knowledge of that industry is taken away from the temples and the priesthood who once had it. And this combined with other technological developments of great importance, fuels this development of metallurgical chemistry and the genius of the, uh, of the practitioners, most of whom were women, interestingly mm -hmm. enough. And which also partly you can understand why the early earliest records of uh, metallurgical processes are called recipes. Mm. It's, it's cooking. We're cooking here. <laughs> That's what we're doing. We need a furnace. We need some substance to heat up and we're going to do things with those substances. And the key development that you have in Upper Egypt at this time is the appearance. And this surprised me in my research because I don't know how many people would ask the question, when did glass blowing start? We take glass blowing for, for granted, but it's an incredible technological advance to be able to make a glass sphere, for example, take some doing, and was not something known to the, the ancient world before the first century BC. The first examples we have of archaeology of glass blowing come from Jerusalem in the first century BC, about the time of Herod the Great, uh, the Massacre of the Innocents, and, and Mark Antony Cleopatra, about that time. They've been found. I, it, it, it is the ability to be able to make long distillation vases and all the other equipment. Different substances react differently to different containers, whereas glass, one of its advantages was that glass didn't change the chemical reactions that, that were necessary to make the dyes. So I think the, the development of chemical apparatus, a lady very important in that, it was known subsequently as Mary the Prophetess, and she was a Jewish woman who lived in Alexandria and probably practiced all over Egypt, wherever she could find a furnace. And, and she was called the Prophetess because she believed that God signally had revealed to her her knowledge. And Zosimus of Panopolis, who's writing around 300 AD, he defers to her many, 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 many times. Her knowledge of condensation, evaporation, distillation, 
the development of app apparatus, one of which we still have today called the Bain-Marie, is named after her, the Bain-Marie separate heating areas, which used in, in, in cooking. And it was this, this idea was also used in, in chemistry. So that's the, the, that's the meaning of, of alchemy as it develops. What it becomes, of course, over a passage of time is multifarious and, and fascinating. Most, most historians of science will recognize that chemistry, as we know it, modern chemistry, develops out of alchemy. But the child has rather bitten the hand of its father and said, well, well we might have come out of alchemy, but alchemy was all superstitious nonsense and had fake series and was obsessed with the notion of creating gold. Well, that was a great error. All the early manuscripts tell us that they weren't trying to produce gold. They didn't think they were transmuting one element or substance into another. They were trying to produce golden color. They were trying to produce effects that would resemble and be taken for gold or taken for silver. But it's also worth remembering that in, in the ancient world at this time, gold, as Pliny says in his natural history, gold and silver, gold particularly, was not the most valuable thing you could get. You might pay gold for a beautifully made object. It was the, the amount of science and artistry that went into the object you paid for. That's what gave it its value, not the, not the sheer gold. So a beautifully made object would be far more valuable than simply a lump of, of pure gold, which is worth, worth, it's important because the obsession with acquiring illicit cash is what dominates our idea of the medieval alchemist, that they were being employed by kings and they were, and aristocrats to make money, basically, raw, raw, raw finance. And that right. was a perversion of the, of the ancient art. And it comes about through people by the seventh century are misunderstanding the texts they've inherited from Upper Egypt and translated into Greek and passed on by Greek priests and philosophers. And it's, there's too much philosophy and too much religion enters it to the, to the exclusion of the science. When exactly did, because the other common understanding of alchemy, I think, from our perspective, is that it is a spiritual process. And so if it begins as a practice of chemistry, when did that spiritual aspect come into it? I don't think you can separate anything that is done in late antiquity from people's beliefs about who was governing the world and so on. And Zosimus himself explicitly condemns fellow practitioners who make obeisance to demons. Mm. It was generally considered in, in, in the Roman Empire that, that the powers that govern this world were, uh, were demons or, or angels, depending how you look. Not necessarily the modern, the, the medieval idea of the evil demon, a daimon, as they said, was the, the genius or spirit of a particular process. And certain daimons were, uh, had, a, had a limited function. The problem was it was also understood that there were evil daimons as well. 
And these were the regarded by Jews particularly and those influenced by Jews, Jewish culture, that these evil uh, things had were the descendants of rebel angels described in the books of Enoch, which I think Jesus would have read too in that period because it was the hot book of the first century in, in, in Jewish esoteric circles. And this notion that these angels had fallen from their heavenly status because they fell in love with or fell in lust with, in, uh, with, with earthly women something they couldn't have up there they could see down on earth and they descended and violated the women and produce a race of giants and that story that mythology is reflected also in genesis chapter six where where it's rather garbled in the in the in the genesis version and uh, if you read it carefully especially in hebrew you realize it's a highly edited little uh, uh, piece but anyway so Simus is aware of this idea that there were recalcitrant daimons and he associates them with statues in temples. He's, he's absorbed a lot of Jewish law. He, he, very interesting for an Egyptian is that he, he rejects outright what he regards as the false cult cults that were operating within Egyptian temples. And he said, now we, we've basically liberated pure science from what had become impure through its contact with demons so right from the beginning of, of of the appearance of this art you have a spiritual dimension already firstly in the negative sense i.e Simon is saying do, you do not need to pay obeisance to these diamonds to have a successful chemistry if we can produce these dyes with pure dyes we don't need you don't need to pray to think all of that's a trap that the diamonds are setting for you. And he makes the point that women particularly said, I've always been more susceptible to these fallen diamonds <laughs> who operate in low places and use trick tricks and 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 um, flattery and anything to get back to their old position of dominance. And he says, we don't need that. Now, at the same time as he's 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 saying, don't touch this daimonic notion of the craft, it's not necessary. He's also aware that when he's observing, especially he gets this from Mary the prophetess, when he's observing the changes within the furnace and then in the distillation vases and then on the keratarchus where, where the, the substances re reconvene after being vaporized, he sees in that a divine truth. And he's also maintains, almost in two minds on this, that the knowledge that these rebel angels brought to earth albeit perverted by them and abused by them was nonetheless heavenly in origin and he recognizes that the actual scientific process itself the manufacturing process is also an image of the of a divine truth so he says that the the practitioner of the chemistry who does not look beyond what he's just looking at to the fact that it's a kind of symbol of God's way with the universe is missing out on the real value of it. So he does have this notion is implicit in, in a series of writings that the alchemist can be spiritually modified and improved while he's doing his work if he sees it for what it is. Otherwise, you know, for him, yes, it will have monetary value. It will make you rich, but you won't get the full riches of it 
until you understand that you are dealing with a divine analogy and you should respect that there is a, a holy aspect to this art. Now, all of those that sorts of thoughts, unfortunately, get mixed up. And by, by the time the Arabs, uh, after the Arab invasion of the seventh century have got hold of it, you have a mixture of spiritual and magical ideas. And, and unfortunately, they're so, they're so mixed and conjoined that uh, alchemists in the future, after the seventh, eighth centuries, can't disentangle the magical from the spiritual. It becomes very, very hard indeed. And uh, the, the hermetic tradition, which comes from Egypt, Alexandra, the Delta and Upper Egypt, becomes uh, much more, as I say, the emphasis is, is on the magic. And that creates huge problems for medieval alchemists who are afraid that they might be making pacts with the devil. And which also gives the idea of alchemy as the black art. Mm. Black or not, it promised great things to anybody who was bought into this idea that you could make, there was wealth at the end of this alchemical rainbow. Mm. It's fascinating. And it seems to me that this kind of looking beyond that you were just speaking about, that that is kind of what you were doing in the book as well trying to look beyond all of these ideas that we hold that aren't necessarily correct. The assumption is, I think, often that people in the past think just like we do, and they don't, especially with the ideas of gold and whatnot. So where is the connection then? Zosimos is living in the second or third century common era in Alexandria. Third, third century. He's third, in the century. third century. Okay. And late, late, late third century. Yeah. And that's a very syncretic time. You know, mm. Alexandria is just this amazing place. And it is, I know, this knot of different threads often. And what are some of the threads that contributed to Zosimus's understanding of alchemy? He is remarkable. I, I, I think I've done probably the best synthesis of material we have about Zosimus because I really went into everything that has survived that has his name attached to it, some of which I think he wrote, some of which was written using his name late, much later. He seems to me to be quite remarkable because of the degree of his syncretic interest. He manages to combine material from the Hebrew Bible, Jewish tradition, with what he, what we call now the Hermetic tradition. He's very much aware of the Hermetic, the tractates uh, ascribed to Hermes Trismegistus, or Trismegistos, mm. as the Greeks would have said it. Trismegistus is the more Latin way of putting it. But these documents which appeared in certainly in the second and third century and were associated with Christian Gnosticism in Upper Egypt purported to present an ancient God but also human figure who knew everything and had access to heavenly wisdom and describes the workings of the universe as being the workings of a single principle which he calls mind and 
God is presented as mind. And this gives the documents, even today, a powerful resonance for spiritual seekers because it's it's a non-anthropomorphic and psychic and spiritual version of a creative intelligence. And the Hermetic writings treat God with perhaps a small g, depending how you, you want to cut these ideas, as being the mind of the universe. Zosimus is very impacted by this because if you see God as the mind of the universe or the, what the Stoics would have called the Logos or Word, then that is manifest in natural processes. So there is the, there is the as it were, the memory of the pure divine activity within creation itself. And this encourages you to immerse yourself in in the mystery of natural processes. Now, very few figures in the ancient world got closer to the intricacies of the chemistry of the universe, or our, our chemistry, as John Dee would call it many, many centuries later, than, than Zosimus. He, 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 is, he is witnessing the, the, the mind at work, and he's aware from the Hermetic writings that he also has a fragment of this mind in him, which was called the noose. And the noose later it translated into Latin as intellectus, which of course we now have a much more rational idea of the intellect. But the original meaning of noose is, is if you can imagine your brain as being kind of a, a, a radiating dish, like a, a, a electron te- tele- modern kind of telescope aimed at the universe. It's the ability to absorb and receive divine messages not necessarily prophetic messages, just insight into the universe. So the noose is that capacity of the mind to absorb the notions of God. And for Zosimus, he knows this is a principal feature of religion. So his religion is a religion, is a noetic or netic religion, or what was many years later was called the religio mentis, the religion of the mind. He's absorbed that, but he's also absorbed the notion that there is really one God. And he's got that from, I mean, there were many, many Jewish, there was the Jewish presence in Egypt in late antiquity was, was widespread and their influence was enormous. And hardly surprising that the first Greek translations of the Hebrew scriptures were made in Ptolemaic Egypt. And specifically, if, if the legend is true, specifically for the Pharaoh and who were very, very interested in these ancient writings in Hebrew that they had. So, and, and a lot of people don't know also that in the Nile Delta, and the, we think we found the, the actual place now, Tel, Tel uh, Yehudie, there was a Ju- the Jewish temple. There was an alternative Jewish temple. And I don't mean synagogue. I mean temple. Right. Think, think Solomon's temple. Think Jerusalem. Think the temple, Matt. There was a temple in Egypt in the Nile Delta until about 73 AD when the Romans destroyed it as part of their campaign because it had given or was perceived to have given assistance to the Jewish rebels of the the great revolt, which ended at Masada in 73 AD, the famous Masada revolt. That that temple was then destroyed, but it had been there for for since since the mid second century BC. So, a lot of in, cross there's this all this cross fertilization of Jewish and Egyptian philosophy. Thus, the Jew, the Egyptians have Hermes 
the Jewish esotericists have Enoch. And the more I've gone into this and the more I've studied it and the reflections of it strongly in the alchemy book, but also in my next book about Enoch specifically. E e Enoch Hermes, the, 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 the one, one is the Egyptian version, one is the Jewish version of the other. Which came first, we can't prove because the dating of the manuscripts that we have don't give us an easy option in, in saying, well, the Jews took the idea from Hermes, or it could equally be the other way around, that, that Egyptian writers have taken the notion of this figure from, from the Enoch tradition. Anyway, it's such a cross-fertilization. Zosimus has grasped all of that, and he has a few ideas of his own as well. So he's a, he's a classic. No, I would say, I mean, he's a signal example of the kind of syncretism at work in Upper Egypt after the first century AD, which has also given us the so-called Gnostic Gospels. And to the extent where I, I find it very difficult to distinguish the idea that the people who wrote uh, your Nag Hammadi library uh, texts were really separate from uh, people who were th theorizing about alchemy. Our real problem is just lack of data. We have the limit, very limited data. What we have, we have only fragments and shadows of what I suspect was a great movement, which has disappeared because of the the amount of destruction wrought on Egypt. Certainly in Roman times, I mean Diocletian in the third century declared that all alchemical books should be destroyed because he believed they were making money for for Egyptian rebels. Now, what, who these rebels were, we, it's quite difficult to work out because we just don't have enough data on third century Egypt to give us a, a very clear idea of what kind of rebellion he was re talking about. But it's fascinating that he said, according to John of Antioch, he says that the, the, this, al this chemical knowledge is making them gold, hmm. uh, which is financing the rebellion. Now, it's obvious to me that if they'd actually been making gold... <laughs> They're, they wouldn't have been burning the books. They'd have been transporting them to Rome, taking right. the alchemists with them and saying, right, you buggers, uh, you can now uh, start making gold for the Emperor Diocletian because he really needs gold bad because he's, he's financing a war. So you wouldn't burn all the books. You might remove them from the people you thought if it was gold. But it's obvious to me that it wasn't a question of they were making gold. What they were doing was making money out of the craft which may have been used by some practitioners to finance, as today, businessmen of various kinds give money to, to assist terrorists and, and liberation forces here and there around the world. I mean, that's the whole Bin Laden story. I mean, we got some money, you've got a rebellion, here's some money, buy your weapons. And I think that, that you've got that going on. I think that probably made the Romans' administration in Egypt, suspicious of the industry. And I, my guess is that the industry was suppressed mm. because that would explain why the documents two, 300 years later were so radically misunderstood, i.e. the link with the trade was gone. You've got an analogous situation happens with Freemasonry, which was a trade. The first uh, lodges of Masons in London were all stonemasons and bringing some gentlemen in who were interested or had some relationship to the trade. And within a hundred years, masonry has become a kind of divine theory.
and its root in architecture and building has, has been severed. I mean, we know that was done deliberately in, in London in the 18th century. There was a deliberate separation of the lodge, the lodges from the trade. And we, we see that with alchemy, that the texts are removed from their, as the Germans would say, their Sitzimleben, their real setting in life. And that's, that's created, that, 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 that process has created so much of the mystique and, and uh, damaging confusion. Damaging only if you care about what really is and what really happened and what we're really talking about. I mean, people like Isaac Newton and these great men of science of the 17th century were struggling with the tradition that was, it was so entangled. I mean, he tried very hard to get to the root of it, but he'd never, he'd, nobody had told him, <laughs> this is the key thing, look, Isaac, <laughs> This stuff was about trade. It's about making things. It's not primarily about the philosophy. But the philosophy which got attached to the early alchemical writings was so potent in itself that it becomes a force. And, and the chemistry becomes a vehicle for transmitting Gnostic and Hermetic ideas. And that's why by the Middle Ages, you cannot separate Hermeticism from alchemy and that very phenomenon of course in in the growth of modern science condemns it it's that it's it's been tainted with this magical stuff but every form of science in the ancient world had a spiritual dimension because they they lived in what they considered a spiritual universe hmm. so i know that at one point in the book you noted and this is along the lines of what you were just saying that there was this bias against alchemy as a profession of sense in the sense of the laboratories as a workplace that we get this strange division between what the alchemists were doing and saying well no it can't be a workplace it has to be something separate from that mm -hmm. uh, which i thought was interesting but Along these lines, I, I, I do want to ask a little bit more about the, the worldview, the cosmology of the alchemists to make sure that I understand it correctly, what was happening. With noose in mind, is it a kind of panentheism where mind is in all things and it is trying to, but it gets corrupted and the goal is to purify it. And the same thing for the um, alchemist to purify themselves to know the mind. Am yeah, I on the um, right track? Yeah, it's okay. No, I'm just fascinated to hear you word that, use the word panentheism because that oh. was a word I invented many oh, okay. years ago. And it's nice to hear it coming yeah. into the coming into the in, into the language. Yes, panentheism. It's it rather than you know God is matter, or matter is separate from God. I was trying to say that there is also the panentheist notion, which while while there is divinity within the created substance, it, it, God Himself, as it were, the, the ultimate God is not defined by that. So it's it's kind of a way of understanding that while you have a reflection of divinity in nature, or as they used to say, a signature of the divine, um, that does not exhaust the being of the divine. Mm. 
In other words, matter and spirit are not identical, but are involved. Mm. At what level and how is 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 a challenge for us today, as it was for our ancestors. It cl clearly, we've uh, a lot to 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 learn there. It's very difficult today because the prevailing philosophy of science is fundamentally materialistic mm -hmm. if it can't be measured if it can't be quantified it's it it can't form part of a scientific data therefore you you can either dismiss it or just pretend it's not there or whatever it is it, it all becomes a rather fruitless argument i mean the whole essence of spiritual things is that they're not visible and they're not quantifiable and their spirituality has a has an un, a peculiar relationship to the time process. So spiritual experiences seem to be able to be out, outside of our normal, normal temporal processes, which is a great challenge if you want to bring everything into your contained material universe, which is the general tendency of scientific philosophy. I'm not going to weigh in on that one on this occasion because <laughs> we're talking about we're talking right. about alchemy. I'm, I, I didn't quite isolate what your main question was there well i was trying to determine what the i, I i'm using the word of a, a cosmology of the alchemists were i was trying to make sure that i was understanding kind of this worldview of the mind uh, noose or logos mm. that what role did it play in this transformation i'm trying to say transformation rather than transmutation and my understanding and i was trying to see if i was correct on this was that this was also in the material and part of the alchemical process was this purification purification of the substance and again i know that you noted that our idea of substance doesn't necessarily translate to how the ancient people understood substance, but it was a purification of the material. And it seemed to me that it was to put it in alignment with this news, but also simultaneously. You've absorbed too much other stuff, which is why you're speaking this. It's slightly. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's confused. why I'm asking. But, okay, I'm going to I'm going to shove an uh, yeah, Occam's yeah. razor here and say, look, yes, yes, please forget, don't confuse two things. Yes. Okay. Zosimus projected his own spiritual philosophy onto what he was doing. Okay. We have no grounds for saying that the early alchemists in general or chemists, should we say, were doing the same thing. Right. He gives us every reason to understand they understood their chemistry at, at one or two levels. Either one, they'd learned some recipes, they'd learned how to do them. Some of them had, weren't using the right techniques and he's trying to correct them. And some of them thought this was an activity which required uh, a magical devotion as well. In other words, uh, they felt they had to pay pay the diamonds for using this knowledge in some way, pay it back. And some had, had obviously come to the conclusion that real success required the approval of of spirit of these spirit entities. Mm. And that's what I was trying to say. So Simus, when we're talking about him particularly here, because he's the, he's, he's the man of, of whom we have the greatest knowledge, mm. uh, 
and we don't have great knowledge of this movement i mean that's the thing the book is saying you know don't think because i've written this book that's the answer of what was going on in the first century no we, we this is what i'm trying to say is given the evidence we have this is as much as we can say i wouldn't say i've exhausted the subject by no means i think pe when people especially if of a chemical bent start to investigate some of the recipes that uh, they could in due course find as has been found and i do write about this in the book they found that some of these recipes tell us things about re chemical reactions which are not familiar to science only simple things like if you extract cinnabar if you extract mercury from cinnabar in a closed iron container you get a better, better reaction than if you do it in a copper container now that was practiced by a group of chemists in Bologna a few years, very only in the very recent few years. And they did the whole thing in the laboratory and they found that the, the original recipe written in the first century AD actually had some useful information that nobody knew today. And I, I think that would be a very profitable way of using the book is actually let's, let's find out what they were doing. Let's see if we can reconstruct more of these recipes because many of them are incomplete. Some of them might be useful to the dyeing industry. Uh, I suspect there are all kinds of applications. The, the question of how they managed to work out, why adding this to that, to distilling at this point, leave it for so many days, was it all trial and error? Or was it, as Mary says, there was a lot of inspiration involved, like Newton's apple, you know. It's, it's very interesting, this process by, by which people become inventors. Um, you know, an inventor is not somebody who simply follows a, a logical scientific process alone. The, the great inventor has a notion that comes into that logical process and makes a little leap, mm. sometimes a very big leap, and joins two facets of knowledge that have hitherto been separate. I, I think we've got to think of the early alchemists in the, in the, in the history of crafts, arts, and certainly of science, i.e. knowledge of substance. They didn't have our conception of the elements, of course, at, at all. And they weren't working from a philosophical perspective. They're, they're, these are, this is a craft. Mm. That's what we're talking about. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't overstress this philosophical notion. I think Zosimus is probably unique, okay. certainly in the evidence thing, that he does apply this. But the point is it's his writings mm. that were passed on. Okay. So the future, by the 7th century, they are seeing as I say, a slightly confused picture of which Sosimus's spiritual interpretation is one aspect, but it becomes very important. Right. And the reason is because the people who were passing on this information were not practicing chemists, they were priests, mm. monks particularly. But we also know by the Middle Ages that the men who were really interested in alchemy were monks generally, mm. people in a a contained environment where they could erect a furnace and carry on in their experiments what but uh, they'd lost the link with the trade that's the point and they were right. some of them were picking up on this idea which flourishes again in the renaissance and the 16th 17th century that the real essence of this process is not to produce gold mere gold but to turn the leaden soul into the golden spirit mm. and they pick they see this analogy very profoundly that this is an this is a divine analogy for human progress now i think that's a valid state 
and aspects of the progress of alchemy i think it's it's alchemy changes it develops every period has its own side of it i mean today uh, people would say for example it was said why were the beetles for example so powerful there was an alchemy of the four that you couldn't take one away it just this was an alchemy now why are we using that word alchemy there we're saying that certain extraordinary effects have come about from having the right ingredients at the right time the right place and to be observed Mm. creates magic creates Mm -hmm. magic meaning change it creates change now that's a valid idea of magic uh, and sorry, a valid idea of magic, certainly, and a valid idea of alchemy. Um, but it's it's just important. But there is also this practical aspect. Contemporary science has been drained of its potential divinity. Although there are physicists and astrophysicists who who are often awestruck by the, what they see, but they are loath to come up with a philosophy to understand why they're all struck they're just sort of all struck you know wow you know how many times do we hear that in our in our era wow and wow is an interesting word because it really says i can't find the philosophy to express what it is this means to me but i know it means something and i know it's special i mustn't say it's magical because they'll think i'm a crank (laughs) so i'll just say wow or your favorite word awesome yeah. you know awesome full of all now all or struck things are when you could say the alchemy is there i hope i'm i'm clarifying yeah. the process and how to treat alchemy serious in a way that we can recover its seriousness without becoming jungian psychologists right yeah no thank you uh, very much for the clarification i appreciate that and that's one of the things i want to do is just ask the questions to make sure that i'm understanding correctly well uh, i didn't it didn't happen to me overnight yeah, <laughs> i didn't yeah, yeah. i didn't always have this notion it's t- it's it, it took a it took a long time before the 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 blinkers came off and the right the shades from from one's eyes and you start to see things as they are i mean that's that's what all my work is about is trying to get around to get down to the original and that i think then you make a much better progress with a subject because you 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 do have i mean one is one has got to demystify things that have been over mystified right there's always a mystery i mean yeah. everything you go into it why is that how does that come about yeah there's there's a mystery the, no, the notion of a mystery is the more you go into it, there's more to discover. Right. Um, I'm particularly interested in origins. Some say that it's a fixation to be interested in origins. But I, I, I think it matters hugely that we have a, have a, have a clear idea of where this came from. I, I, because I think otherwise you, you end up with the most exotic. It's like the Rosicrucian mythology, which I wrote about in great detail what began as a game became a religion okay well if you like the religion then you're probably not interested too much in the fact that it comes from a game you know a play uh, a fantasy i'm so in love but i think people are often misled by a fantastic notion of of the magical and the and things that strike the imagination and all this sort of thing and i think alchemy has been particularly ill-served by fantasies uh, as has rosicrucianism freemasonry 
Gnosticism, Christianity. I mean, I I do think if it, you know, for those who are interested, get down to the source, really. The the water always tastes better nearer the spring. Put it that way. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I also like to look at the origins of things. And I think part of my line of thinking comes out of just how I, what I've been teaching. Uh, I teach history of religions often, and I'm fascinated about that period of time and especially Gnosticism and ideas of, you know, and Hermeticism. And that's what was kind of behind my original question was those sorts of connections there. Well, um, yes, I think I, yeah. I, one of the facets of that I do go into in the book is where did these alchemists in, in late antiquity, i.e. second, third, fourth century AD, where did they sort of convene? What did they do? Yeah. Did they have workshops? Did they have separate this? And I discussed the whole notion, and this is only a hypothesis, that there were hermetic guilds. Mm-hmm. I can see you've got Walter Scott's translation yeah. of the Hermet- Hermetica on your shelf there, published by Shambhala yeah. in uh, the 80s. Not a bad translation. Copenhagen's is probably, you may have that as well. Yeah, um, You've got it next to it, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the orange book, yeah. Uh, it, my eyesight's terrible, but I I know these things. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, there is a there is definitely a, a fascinating tie-in between the whole imagery of Gnosticism. Even look at the Gospel of Thomas. I mean, it talks about the male the male and the female must become one, and all this sort of stuff. When you read the writings of Mary the prophetess, she says. The male is the the metals. The female are the what she calls the incorporeals, which would mean spirits, you know. Mm-hmm. And the, the spirits are things which are in process. They no, they don't have the solidity of the metals. That's why mercury becomes such an important element of of, of the alchemical process because it, one minute it's a solid, then it's it's liquid at certain temperature. And there is this notion that comes with that that the transformative element is uh, able to penetrate uh, because it can become incorporeal. Now, Mary, as, as the book makes play, makes great play of how the male and the female must become one, and she's envisaging the, the vapour from this combination from the furnace, as it were, hardly being visible, becoming an invisible presence, comes up the distillation tube, encounters a, a cool keratarchus, settles on it aha we have a new element of a die now you think of the ascension of jesus for example in those terms as actually the apostles chapter one if i remember right is you know jesus is a cloud removes him from their sight and it's a bit ambiguous whether jesus actually levitates or where but they are looking up anyway they're looking up so you have the corporeal the bodily image becoming something else and then it presumably re-manifests at the right hand of god and then come to judge the quick and the dead and all the rest of it so that analogy of of the changing adventures of substances cross has a direct crossover with gnostic ideas of the spirit being separable the panuma being separate from the material world so in this in this period you do have that you have gnosis rubbing shoulders with art and practice 
very different to our own day where they're really sundered to, to a large extent. Some would say, well, maybe we should bring this understanding together again and give more reality to our spiritual views and more spirituality to our material views. This seems to be a kind of thing that people want as uh, comes out of the 60s, but it doesn't just that 60s was, a, you know, uh, sort of much of the 60s understanding was was elementary, but it's opened up people to now take an interest in things which were regarded as condemned knowledge. I mean, nowadays in many places, uh, you know, I, I, it, we're seeing a revolution of, 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 of among some people of the conceptions of spirit and matter. Mm-hmm. with huge resistance from the churches and the orthodox guardians of religion. And they don't like this stuff any more than the Roman church liked the idea of too many monks doing their own thing mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages and later, because because this is highly individualistic. You know, it's Can we let them loose and all this sort of thing? So religion today, orthodox religion, likes to keep itself separate from the spiritual seekers as they're called and and industry and science want to keep away from both Mm. please you know and that kind of separation is very different to the to the more organic and uh, holistic uh, universe that consciously is embraced by some people some people in egypt in this time it's it's almost a when I think of late antique Egypt, there's almost a kind of false dawn idea about it. It was one of these cultures that seemed to be going somewhere and then it's gone. Yeah. You know, and even today, if you go to Egypt, the whole emphasis of the government of Egypt on tourism is about the ancient Egyptians. It's all Amenhotep and, mm. and all of that, Tutankhamun. And there's a whole dimension that they're really missing out on, I think, yeah. in terms of selling Egypt as a cultural force. Because you can't honestly say that the pyramids or the sphinx or, you know, mummification or these graves of pharaohs is a cultural force. It's a great cultural interest. There's huge curiosity. What's the root of that curiosity is the notion that the Egyptians had some kind of spiritual uh, notion which just rings a little bell with people you know that they expected to go on to another world and they expected to be judged for their sins and all this sort of stuff and there's there's been a, this hermetic egyptianism has been a, a cultural force in the west i presume and, and elsewhere i i expect and alchemy is very much involved uh, involved with that because the the original knowledge seems to come was was held by the the temples before it became an industrial independent movement or gilded movement. And although the tradition says that a, a lot of the key discoveries came from Persia and Mesopotamia, Ostanis was the Persian figure who's supposed to have taught the Egyptians uh, a more profound knowledge of alchemy, according to documents attributed to the Greek philosopher Democritus, falsely attributed. He lived much too early for that. But I think the whole thing is fascinating. There are all sorts of contemporary ramifications. Yeah. And uh, I, I hope the book opens eyes. Yeah, it does. That's why I was, you know, I read a lot of books for the podcast. 
And I regretted that I could only read your book once. <laughs> I, I, There's um, nothing to stop you. <laughs> yeah. But I find it improves like a good wine. Uh, yeah. I, I, the last time I read it, I was when I when I'd finished it, I was kind of as usual. When you finish a book, you were exhausted by it, exhausted through it, exhausted with it, and don't really want to know. And I, I wasn't sure whether it was worth the effort or not. Anyway, I was quickly on to the next uh, thing. But I, 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 when I knew that I was going to be interviewed about it, I thought, well, I better read it again. And I was very, very pleasantly surprised that I, I was learning from reading my yeah. own book. Because when you're writing very often, you're not, you're aware of what you're doing in a very different way, but it doesn't necessarily carry on into your daily life. You're putting it down on paper, so in a way you don't have to think about it anymore. Right. And when I read it, I was, I thought, God, this is good. You know, I mean, yeah. honestly, I, I, as a spy on my own work, I, I thought this is all right. It may take a while to sink in, you know, there'll be academic resistance. A lot of ve their vested interests in academic yeah. things, which get in the way. You know, academics are not uh, the uh, angels of paragons of virtue and truth. Uh, right. Many of them are struggling to be recognized for their two bit of knowledge and their their last little thesis, a comment on somebody else's thesis, which was a comment on somebody else's thesis, all to make a hypothesis, which then three other thesis writers comment on. And they we have this thing in academe called peer review, you know, which right. means you you show your stuff to somebody who probably doesn't understand what you're getting at very often. But yeah. it's a hierarchy. I suppose it, it's a, a working system. It has advantages. But one thing it does do is it's very much the old Aesop fable, the dog in the manger, the, the what I call the interested layman, the intelligent non-specialist is very, very often left out. Mm -hmm. And to, with dire results, I mean, yeah. my God, imagine if there'd been free, free, free study of the Quran in the Middle East for the last 200 years. Imagine the difference today. Yeah. If that, I mean, free study. I mean, like completely no holes barred, Whatever you find, you find, you know, and you don't get annihilated for thinking it or proposing it. And if somebody disagrees with you, okay, they write something and say, well, that's not. But it would have made historically a huge difference. And I think part of my job is to be the pontifex, the bridge to take the best scholarship that's around us. Oh, okay, it's what I see as the best scholarship around us. I mean, right. no, I'm not stopping anyone else finding what they think is the best scholarship around. Right. You do need scholarship. There've got to be people who are bloody good at this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. you've got you've got to have people who've read read the material, and and I'd say posterity is the judge. Uh, mm. The ideas that survive tend to be the ones that are, have an inherent quality, whether mine will or not. Who I won't be here. Yeah. Somebody once asked me, you know, as people ask you, who do you work for? <laughs> And I said, no, it's not IBM, it's posterity. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's it. Now, who knows whether, whether these ideas will, will be fecund. I have a sort of faith that the, the good stuff does come through eventually, but it doesn't always, doesn't always. Yeah. Some things take years and years. And then somebody says, well, look at the history of cinema. You know, how many people are now discovering what was done in the silent era? And, you know, there's generations of people who are very separate from movies in the 50s, 60s. They have the opportunity to discover it. it's great uh, mm -hmm. that they do. But 
you've always got that. But how could they have treated Orson Welles so badly? <laughs> how could, you know, it's very rare that a great thing is recognized in its time, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. for being, for, for its greatness. I mean, mm -hmm. okay, the Beatles were phenomenally successful in, in every commercial possible sense, but how many people could really take what they really stood for at the yeah. time? Right. I remember in England, there was a great move against them. Once Maharishi Mahesh Yogi showed up or, you know, any foreign influence, you know, Yoko Ono or whatever it was, or LSD or San Francisco or the birds or all of that stuff coming in. Suddenly the nice lads from Liverpool were becoming kind of, what are they becoming? You know, I think the Queen was reported as saying, you know, they seem to have gone a bit peculiar. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that became a kind of, I know we're off the subject, but we're not really, because I think it's it's our reaction to knowledge yeah. that we're talking about. That's the book about alchemy is really a, about trying to redress a misapprehension about right. a form of knowledge. Right, exactly. And, and I think that's its great value. And you have to be, as a reader, you have to be open to the idea that some of the things that you thought may not be correct. Oh God, you know. please! Yeah, I yeah. like books that do that for me. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm delighted to be shown that I'm wrong because we don't get anywhere unless we make mistakes. Right. And, right. and you should be a wise person. What is the the proverb? I think it's in Proverbs, isn't it? Uh, a wise a wise man accepts a rebuke, but a fool a fool always are hostile to it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I I've learned from my mistakes, and that line of the my way frank sinatra regrets i have a few oh no mate yeah. i i have too many to mention yeah yeah well and i always want to you know and this is the value of um doing this podcast is i have this great opportunity to speak with authors and i just i'm like i just want to try to understand and i just want to try to learn so i see this as an amazing opportunity and i'm so grateful that i had this opportunity to speak with you about this pleasure and, yeah and and i think that you know what i want to end with I, I do have one final question but one of the things that i wanted to end with is something that you say at the end of the book which is something about the value or what we can take away from alchemy is that we can dedicate our knowledge to the service of the highest conceivable being and be mindful of our temptations and within science, but within all scholarship, I think, and in our own lives to aim towards the best. Yeah. The, God, God is the highest you can conceive of, but don't think that the highest you can conceive of exhausts the divine. Right. May, you may be in for a surprise, you know, but yeah. we have to, but, you know, as we tell our children, I hope, you know, do, just do your best. Yeah. If you keep doing your best, you will get better. Yeah. Whether we reach the big best, well, who knows? And I think if you keep moving, you're, you're in the right direction. You are doing the best, you know, whatever mighty powers may be involved, we're only human. Uh, and if we don't do our best, we're less than human. And if we do, we dignify the word of our strange animal nature. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, I know that we are out of time, but let me ask you, uh, what do you have coming up next? What are you working on now? 
Well, I've, I've, fin- I've finished it now, and it's gone off to the publisher. So it is a, it is meant to be the definitive, <laughs> complete work on the books of Enoch. Mm. Working title. I'd like would like to give it the overall title Beyond the Universe, which sounds extra Star Trekky, but it, it's not. I'm not talking about the what the limits of the universe or the frontier. I'm looking about a conception that was thought at its time 200 years bc to be about life beyond the created world and the but the real title is the amazing books of enoch pioneer of jewish mysticism and the origins of christianity so i i'm coping with that is the the power of these writings attributed to the prophet enoch which appear in by the second century bc in Egypt and 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 Judea, um, who've had enormous impact. I don't think Christianity, as we know it, would be anything like what it is. It had it not been for, as I make the case in the book, that uh, Jesus and his family were brought up in a in an enochic atmosphere. Mm. And this book really—that's why I say it's the origins of Christianity. Something we've all been looking for. I think this book hopefully will be a game changer in bringing the best of scholarship that's been uh, been exhausted on this. I mean, the key thing was that the Book of Enoch was thought to be a pseudepigraphical text. Right. It had no real place in biblical studies, except as a footnote. It wasn't even brought, we didn't even have a copy of it in the Western world between the late fifth uh, century, at least. And uh, 1784, when James, um, names, um, oh, Bruce, James Bruce, the Scottish explorer, brings it back from Upper Egypt. <laughs> but the copy he got actually was from Ethiopia. And he brings it back, and he couldn't translate it, and it wasn't translated into, until 1829. And then it had a kind of shelf life of, of obscurity. And it wasn't really picked up until the 1880s. And then the war happened and it was still regarded as an apocryphal text. So that made it easy for theologians to dismiss it. And then 1945, 46, 47, 48, you have these shepherds in Jordan discovering these scrolls and Wadi Qumran. And they found seven copies Mm. in Aramaic of the book of Enoch or what part of the book of Enoch, the book of the watchers and other segments of, of the, of what was known as the book of Enoch. And that changes the whole thing because suddenly we know this stuff was around in pre-Christian times. Mm-hmm. It's not a late forgery as somebody, some theologian, Catholic theologians have maintained. It's a critical text. You can't imagine the book of Revelation, for example, Right. Without the Book of Enoch, you can't imagine uh, Jesus' t- tri- teachings attributed to Jesus about the Last Judgment without the Enochic text. It's the the bombshell, hmm. M- in my view, much more so than any of the other uh, famous Dead Sea um, sectarian texts. I think the the Enoch tradition is going to transform our idea of the transition uh, in some minds of the late pre-Roman Judaism Mm. and what is coming out of Judaism in the first century. 
Book of Enoch is utterly critical. Yeah. And I think it's it's was a huge delight to to get onto this book and hugely difficult too because I knew I was in a quagmire of scholarship. You know, there are a lot of a lot of scholars who want to find the the holy grail within the Enochic question. Mm. I take a view of it. My book investigates the field, the whole of it, and including the subsequent discoveries of other Enochic texts. So it's a bit bigger than 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 maybe the publisher might have liked. I don't know, but it's not big. I I think it, it could have been even bigger. You know, yeah. <laughs> but I think it it does the business and. And now it'll either be rejected because it's the shock of the new, mm. but it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a combative text at all. I'm not saying you're all wrong. <laughs> it's not one of those. I'm not looking for sensation. I just think the more you go into it, it becomes sensational just because as the truth is sensational, like a diamond shines, you know? Yeah. So I, 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 in fact, after finishing it, I couldn't think, well, how do I top this? I, <laughs> I, I haven't, thought of anything since wow. i think i think this will be the the cherry on the cake for me wow Wonderful. book of enoch well i look forward to reading it and it seems timely there's a i think a renewed interest in enoch i went to a class i like i mentioned i teach religious studies and mm -hmm. i went to the very first day of class once and a student had book of enoch it's like are we going to cover this <laughs> so there is there is an interest yeah Oh, gosh. And, you know, when I was studying theology at Oxford, it wasn't, I think it was mentioned in yeah. one essay I had to do, right. but it was like, you know, it's, it's not important. It's like you know, Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs or these dismissed as pseudepigrapha of some historic interest. Right. But I was, I my intuition, uh, even then, back in the 1970s, was, this is where the real battleground is going to be fought. It's going to be the Gnostic Gospels. It's going to be the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is where we're going to find, we're going to get some real change out of this. And it was not a view that was welcome when I was a student, I can tell you, and had some problem with that because theology was supposed to turn you into a minister of the Orthodox faith. A very, very good thing, but I think you should, you need to, yeah. What can I say? I, th I, I could see a transformative knowledge coming, yeah. something that was really going to make theology exciting for many, 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 many more people than it was when I was growing up, where it was virtually abandoned, I think, except yeah. in, you know, highly biblicist circles. Right, right. Well, I am so grateful for your work. And like I said, I am very much looking forward to reading that. So thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and again, appreciate everything that you're doing and love the book, The First Alchemist and highly recommend it to everybody. Oh, lovely. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 119 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience. Now, you know what's coming next, all the usual. Sign up for my Patreon, share this with friends, family, coworkers, share it on social media, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. You know the grind. But here's the thing. All that is really important. Putting this podcast together takes a lot of time and effort. Right now, it is a labor of love, 
I'm in the process of making changes to improve the podcast and the YouTube channel. It's slow going, but your support will help me speed up the process and ensure that I can continue with the podcast and offer much more content than what I do now. As I always like to say, I'm here in the front range now doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality and ecology, psychedelics and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know, I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me in my efforts to share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.